Recycling and upcycling. It's become very popular in recent years. Several TV programs owe their existence to this growing trend. You might not be interested in that kind of thing, I don't know, but it seems that plenty of people are. There's one program on TV and a woman scours council recycling depots looking for items that people are just wanting to throw away. But she wants to repurpose them and give them a new lease of life. There's one that has two men rummaging through people's sheds and garages and lifelong collections of miscellanea looking for things that can be sold or uh, once they've been modified and try and make a profit, profit out of them. All kinds of things. Domestic furniture, industrial furniture, military hardware, motorbikes, old petrol pumps, yes. All manner of obsolete appliances. Nothing is beyond doing something with. Nothing is beyond the possibility of being renovated or reinvented. Salvage that, cut this off, discard, rework, refurbish, clean, polish, paint, et voila. And you're left with an item of beauty or function, or sometimes both, at least in the eyes of the beholder, and some mug somewhere is prepared to pay over the odds for it. And the whole premise goes like this. There is potential in this item. I can see its potential. I can make something of it. I can see what it could be. Just needs a bit of work. That's how we like to think of ourselves. That's how most people, if they approach religion at all, like to think of religion. That's how people who have no interest in religion like to think of themselves. Go to a secular life coach and their philosophy is not at all dissimilar. None of us are so bad that we deserve the scrap heap. None of us are beyond redemption, by which, of course, they mean redeeming yourself. There's potential in all of us. There's the ability to improve, to attain, so that you're able to put yourself above criticism or reproach and achieve fulfillment, success, reputation. Out of interest, for the very first time ever, I googled two words, self-improvement. The first two listings were entitled, number one, Unmask Your Legendary Life. And number two, Become the Best Version of You. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Who wouldn't want to? And at the bottom, underneath one listing, before you even have to click on the website, says this. The definition of self-improvement is pretty self-explanatory. 
Self-improvement is the improvement of one's knowledge, status, or character by one's own efforts. It is the quest to make ourselves better in any and every facet of life. I suspect none of you are actually too surprised by any of that. This is what the world believes. This is how the world behaves. And in that, it has nothing in common with the gospel. Nothing. The world believes in the power of yourself, the potential of yourself, the sufficiency of yourself. You just need to want it enough. You just need to work hard enough. Now, in terms of building discipline into daily routines, in terms of working towards particular goals, and of course, ultimately, building up treasures on earth, because that's what most people are after, you can achieve a certain measure of worldly success. That's not in dispute. But as a wealthy and influential man, as wealthy and influential as Solomon was, as he discovered, there's an itch that we all have that that doesn't even begin to scratch. And actually, it's rather more serious than just an itch. Even the most self-improved and self-helped men and women discover that the best version of themselves is frustratingly elusive and always just around the corner or over the next brow of the hill and is not quite as legendary as they were led to believe. Most discover that their previous dissatisfaction is simply replaced by a new one. The one thing they lacked is now replaced by something else that they realize they lack. And on and on they go. Never pausing to evaluate what it is that truly is of worth. And they just keep on working. I think for many people, continual hard work means that actually they never have to stop and think about it for too long. They never pause to evaluate what is truly of worth. I remember hearing the, the explorer, uh, Mr. Fines, speaking after the death of his wife, being asked how he copes with it. I just keep on working so I don't have to think about it. In his encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus reveals just how poor and helpless all of us really are. Nicodemus is a man who, to the ordinary Jew in the street, 
He's made it in life. He's a Pharisee. He's a man of high rank and esteemed. Under the cover of darkness, almost certainly because he doesn't want to be seen coming to Jesus, he doesn't want to do it openly in the full light of day, Nicodemus comes to speak to Jesus. Now, we can't be certain what it was that he might have wanted to actually say or ask Jesus, because immediately following his opening greeting in verse 2, Jesus pulls the rug right out from under his feet and catches him completely unawares with his reply. Jesus is rather good at doing that. Nicodemus begins by suggesting that he and his fellow Pharisees can clearly see that this young man, Jesus, has come from God. And perhaps there almost certainly seems to be a heart of genuine inquiry in Nicodemus. But at the same time, is it that Nicodemus believes that he's addressing Jesus as one who is at least his equal in religious standing? given his background and who he is as a man in Jewish society. As people, we know what we're talking about, Jesus. We can see this in you. As those who know a thing or two about being God's men here in Jerusalem, we can see that you are a rabbi. Is there something of that in Nicodemus? I think perhaps there is. I might be being unfair to him and misrepresenting him but I think the response that Jesus gives him straight away that makes me think I'm perhaps on the right track Jesus comes straight out with this unbelievable statement in order to convey to Nicodemus that right now he is a million miles away from where he thinks he actually is this man of Nicodemus that is this man of Endless dedication to fastidious, self-disciplined law-keeping. That's what a Pharisee is. Nicodemus, you're not even close. Unless. Unless. Unless one is born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Number one, what you are is what you will always be. Jesus confronts Nicodemus with the need to be born again because left to yourself, the person you are born as is what you will always be left to yourself. So what are you? What am I? What the Bible teaches in answer to that completely bursts people's self-inflated opinions of themselves. You and I like to think that there is sufficient good in all of us. All we have to do is be sincere, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, Surely all of us are capable of living perfectly reasonable, respectable, acceptable lives. Some people don't get a good start. Some people are dealt a rough hand. 
deprived of benefits and privileges which others enjoy. Some make bad choices and unwise decisions, but there's sufficient good in all of us that with determination, given the right environment, given sufficient encouragement and a few helpful tips, all of us can turn our lives around. Well, now, in terms of the kind of life that many people live here on planet Earth, there is some truth in that way of thinking. But the Bible confronts us with the reality that all of us were created for eternity by an eternal God. And that earthly way of thinking does nothing to address that issue. Eternity is written in our hearts, we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The evidence of that is that the vast majority of people earnestly want to believe that their loved ones who they've lost are still there somewhere in another realm, another sphere, another dimension. Surely they're not just obliterated and gone. This life is but for a moment. And eternity beckons. People do know that, you know. The Bible confronts us with the reality that this world is very wicked, is very evil. Our own conscience agrees with that. We know it's true. Because what we all struggle to accept is that each one of us is as much a part of that problem as anybody else. Now, it is true that under God's grace, remarkably, many people can and do live relatively upright lives when it comes to things like living peaceably with their next-door neighbour, being helpful, doing a good day's work, for the most part, abiding by the laws of the land. You know lots of people like that. I do. But there are still many sins that they love and embrace. They can do all of those kinds of things, but they're still very proud and selfish. Extremely covetous. Bear grudges. Are easily filled with bitterness and spite. Think nothing of all kinds of sexual immorality. Fiddle their expenses if they think they'll get away with it. Such good people. But they can't sustain a marriage. Because their, their spouse sees and knows all their faults when the front door closes. There was a lady whose job was the customer meter and greeter for a well-known company. She was lovely. She was kind. She was thoughtful. Pleasant. She was popular. The staff loved her. The customers loved her. And then, one day, she wasn't there. Nor the next day. Nor the next. Where is she? Is she ill? Management said nothing for several weeks. A mystery. 
all kinds of murmurings going around in the staff room. And then the bomb was dropped. She's been dismissed. Financial irregularities have been found. And all through the company, there's a synchronised dropping of jaws. But she's so nice! Yes, but underneath, underneath all the niceness, lurks evil and wickedness of every sort. In each one of us lies the capacity, the heart, to be that woman and all kinds of other evils. And over the next ten years in that office, because it's a true story, over the next ten years in that office, it happened all over again. Twice. Such nice people. But, and in the quietness of our own hearts, we all know the sinful thoughts, schemes that we've all mulled over in our minds, harboured in our hearts, maybe even at times cherished them, maybe even nurtured them. And I haven't even started to mention those sins which are even more grievous to God in our rejection of him, our dismissal of him, our rebellion against him. We do not honour him. We do not hallow his name. We do not love him at all, let alone with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. We despise his truth when he tells us how we ought to live. And the Bible says that is what you are. And that is what you will always be. This is what is meant by the phrase, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. In verse 6. That's what that means. The flesh in this context refers to this sinful nature with which all of us have been born. And so regardless of the outer facade, regardless of the external appearance, on the inside, we are all rotten through and through. And it's only by God's grace that we are kept from being the monsters that we're capable of being. And at the same time, we are incapable of making ourselves to be the kind of upright people that God requires us to be. To better ourselves, to improve ourselves, of a sort, yes, but only of a sort. As God would have us be, for acceptance into his kingdom as God requires us to be in order that we could avoid the anger of his displeasure and future judgment not a chance 
No, says Jesus, unless, unless you are born again. What you are is what you will always be unless you are born again. Because in the gospel of Christ, there is hope. Number two, what you need to be, you cannot make yourself to be. The change that's required is so radical that Jesus likens it to being born again. No. No, he doesn't actually. Jesus does not say that you need to be changed so much that it's like being born again. He says you actually need to be born again. This is not a renovation. This is demolishing the old house, clearing the site and building a brand new one. This is not reviving someone from the brink of death. This is raising the dead to life. And by the way, this is not raising the dead back to a life they once had, like Jesus did, and then they died again. This is even more radical. This is bringing someone to life who has only ever been dead and has never had this life before. You need new birth. You need new spiritual life, which only God can give. And think about that. It puzzled Nicodemus, didn't it? New birth? New birth. That's not something that you or I can do. Nothing has ever given birth to itself. That's impossible. One gives birth to another. Nothing can give birth to itself. Our good friend J.C. Ryle, the first bishop of Liverpool, he understood. Listen to him. We come into the world without faith, without love, without fear toward God. We have no natural inclination to serve him or obey him. No natural pleasure in doing his will. Left to himself, no child of Adam would ever turn to God. The truest description of the change which we all need in order to make us real Christians is the expression new birth. It is the calling into existence a new creature. Something that never before existed is what you need to become. A new creature with a new nature, new habits of life, new tastes, new desires, new appetites, new judgments, new opinions, new hopes, and new fears. You need to fear God like you've never feared him before. All this and nothing less is implied when our Lord declares that we all need new birth.
Well, there speaks a man who understands. And we can probably forgive Nicodemus a little bit for not understanding when he first heard Jesus utter those words. This is no physical renewal or transformation. This is not go back to the beginning and try again, Nicodemus. Jesus is referring to your innermost being. That which makes you to be the thinking, reasoning, feeling, conscious soul that is inside your flesh and bones. You, that you, needs to be born again. Made completely new. And what you must be, only God can make you be. What you must be, only God can make you to be. Your only hope is to be born again. You must be, verse 7, something which only God can do. Born of water and the spirit, water signifying cleansing of the soul. Only God can do that for you. And the spirit, meaning that it is truly and definitely the work of God, the Holy Spirit within you, and nothing else and no one else. He it is who makes you new. A good question comes to our minds straight away. How? What happens? How is this done? How is this achieved? How can this be for me? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That God has chosen and called out of the world a people for himself. He lavishes upon them abundant grace and mercy. And he calls and he draws them to himself. Jesus said that as the good shepherd, his sheep hear his voice as he calls them. And they come to him and they follow him. For us today, this is done through the preaching of the gospel, through the declaring of the word of God. And the Holy Spirit takes that word. The Holy Spirit implants that word in the heart, in the soul, in the mind. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit imparts new life. The Spirit regenerates and changes the nature of the sinner. So this one in their sin now is receptive to the word of God and starts to understand the word of God and wants to respond and can respond because God has made them alive. But the work of the word is really important. Listen to Peter in his first letter. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God and implants it as at the same time he regenerates and makes new and brings to you all of the spiritual faculties and capacities that you need to be a Christian, to respond in repentance and faith. Even your faith is the gift that he brings to you. 
The Bible is preached and the gospel is preached. Have you heard the gospel? Have you? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That God has demonstrated his great love for you. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The just for the unjust. To bring us to God and to reconcile us to God. Giving his only begotten son. Verse 16, of course, in this famous chapter. That whoever, whoever believes on him will not perish. Will not enter into that eternal judgment and punishment that your sins deserve. No, not for you now. All dealt with in Christ. And instead, everlasting life is yours. This gospel, this message, says Paul, this is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16. No other way. Question. Have you believed in Christ Jesus? Have you trusted him as your saviour? And are you living for him as your Lord? By this means... You who were dead in trespasses and sins are made alive together with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. By grace, through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. No longer the child of God's wrath that you were, but now. A child of God. It's what we sang in our hearts. I hope you did. In our opening hymn. He speaks. And listening to his voice. New life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts. Rejoice the humble poor believe. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. Because he's cancelled it. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Back in John chapter 3, Jesus likens this to the blowing of the wind. Who can see the time, the place where the gentlest breeze first begins to blow? Who knows what its path and its course will be? Who can reach out and touch it or take hold of it? Who can follow the wind as it strengthens and then subsides? And who can place their finger on the exact spot where it finally disappears? We understand something of the workings of the natural world which produces the blowing of the wind, but there's still a great mystery to it nevertheless, isn't there? But its force, its existence is felt is undeniable and its power is all too evident. Such is the work of God's spirit in this world, says Jesus, in the soul of every single one who is born again. Such mystery 
wrapped up in all of this. This is the gospel of God. We should expect it to blow our minds. But nevertheless, the reality of it may be known and seen and felt. What you are is what you always will be. What you need to be, you cannot make yourself to be. What you must be, only God can make you to be. And what you must be is born again.